I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Good morning, Prakaptan, or whatever time of day it is near you, or night for that matter. Today we're going through Seneca's 39th letter to his friend Lucilius, or Lucilius, or Lucilius, as Margaret Graver uses Lucilius. I'm tempted to change what I've been using, Lucilius. But then I'd probably have to start saying Epictetus, or goodness forbid, Epictetus. And I'm far too unwilling to put myself through that. And in my defense, translation from Greek to Latin to English over goodness knows how many years means I'm going to be wrong to someone somewhere, no matter how I say things. And besides, tomato, tomato, you know what a tomato is. Or in this case, what a Lucilius is, or a Lucilius, or a Lucilius. Speaking of Margaret Graver, I recently got the chance to meet her, and she is, as you would expect, absolutely lovely and absolutely a legend, R.E., her understanding of Stoicism. I highly recommend her books related to Stoicism, any of them, doesn't matter, they're all great. Or, you know, you can get them all. That's what I did. Today's letter, as I said, is 39 and is entitled On Noble Aspirations. Just before I read it, the use of the word mean, M-E-A-N, in this letter is in the mathematical sense, as in the average or middle position. The Buddhist might say the middle way in the sense that it's used here. Okay, here's the letter. I shall indeed arrange for you, in careful order and narrow compass, the notes which you request, but consider whether you may not get more help from the customary method than from that which is now commonly called a breviary. Though, in the good old days, when real Latin was spoken, it was called a summary. The former is more necessary to one who is learning a subject, the latter to one who already knows it. For the one teaches, and the other stirs the memory. But I shall give you abundant opportunity for both. A man like you should not ask me for this authority or that. He who furnishes a voucher for his statements argues himself unknown. I shall therefore write exactly what you wish, but I shall do it in my own way. Until then, you have many authors whose works will presumably keep your ideas sufficiently in order. 
pick up the list of the philosophers. That very act will compel you to wake up when you see how many men have been working for your benefit. You will desire eagerly to be one of them yourself. For this is the most excellent quality that the noble soul has within itself, that it can be roused to honorable things. No man of exalted gifts is pleased with that which is low and mean. The vision of great achievement summons him and uplifts him. Just as the flame springs straight into the air and cannot be cabined or kept down any more than it can repose in quiet, so our soul is always in motion, and the more ardent it is, the greater its motion and activity. But happy is the man who has given it this impulse towards better things. He will place himself beyond the jurisdiction of chance, he will wisely control prosperity, he will lessen adversity, and will despise what others hold in admiration. It is the quality of a great soul to scorn great things and to prefer that which is ordinary rather than that which is too great. For the one condition is useful and life-giving, but the other does harm just because it is excessive. Similarly, too rich a soil makes the grain fall flat. Branches break under too heavy a load. Excessive productiveness does not bring fruit to ripeness. This is the case with the soul also, for it is ruined by uncontrolled prosperity, which is used not only to the detriment of others, but also to the detriment of itself. What enemy was ever so insolent to any opponent as are their pleasures to certain men? The only excuse that we can allow for the incontinence and mad lust of these men is the fact that they suffer the evils which they have inflicted upon others. And they are rightly harassed by this madness because desire must have unbounded space for its excursions if it transgresses nature's mean. For this has its bounds, but waywardness and the acts that spring from willful lust are without boundaries. Utility measures our needs, but by what standard can you check the superfluous? It is for this reason that men sink themselves in pleasures, and they cannot do without them once they have become accustomed to them, and for this reason they are most wretched, because they have reached such a pass that what was once superfluous to them has become now indispensable. And so they have become the slaves of their pleasures instead of simply enjoying them. They even love their own ills, and that is the worst ill of all. Then it is that the height of unhappiness is reached, when men are not only attracted but even pleased by shameful things, and when there is no longer any room for a cure now that those things which once were vices have become habits. Oh boy, do we have some exciting things to talk about in this one. Strap in, baby. He will place himself beyond the jurisdiction of chance, he will wisely control prosperity, he will lessen adversity, and will despise what others hold in admiration. What in the name of fate is Seneca talking about here? He will wisely control prosperity? How can someone control prosperity? Isn't this going against the idea of determinism? Against the idea of the cart, the rope, and the dog? 
I was at a bit of a loss here, if I'm being honest, but here's what I came to understand. Seneca is saying that the sage is capable of controlling prosperity, and this is actually accurate. How? Because the sage will find all outcomes prosperous, as all outcomes are the product of a thing which he or she cannot control. Hurricane? Who cares? This hurricane is the will of that which is nature, or that which is fate, and I cannot control these things, so even this is prosperity of a kind, in that the sage is defining what prosperity is. As for this part, he will lessen adversity and will despise what others hold in admiration. This is also fine and good. Anyone who sees adversity not as adversity, but as enough for him or her, because their expectations and definition of prosperity is so, in a word, rugged, they don't experience adversity like others do. But the first part, he will place himself beyond the jurisdiction of chance. This one is almost a bridge too far for me. How could anyone, even the sage, be beyond the jurisdiction of chance? Is chance any different than fate? The only way I can see this making sense is if the answer to that question is yes, that to the ancient Stoics, fate was one thing, and chance was a malformed understanding of fate. To the non-Stoic, cause and effect could be seen as chance, but the sage would be beyond this misconception, though not beyond fate. But if that is what Seneca meant, it's an odd way to phrase it. Certainly he was too well-informed of Stoicism, and I think it is fair to say that Seneca was quite well-informed of Stoicism, regardless of what you think of him, to suggest that a sage could, in any way, control fate. He could also mean that when you understand fate, you don't view it as some sort of policing force, as Farquharson uses the word jurisdiction in his translation, but as a fundamental expression or force of nature, capital N. He could mean that. And in that case, I'm not confused. But if he meant we could control fate, capital F, fate, I don't know what to say about that. What about you? What do you think? Join me and other listeners in the Discord community for free at stoicismpod.com forward slash discord and add your thoughts to the episode follow-up channel. Thank you for listening today, my fellow Prokoptan. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you haven't yet reviewed us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do. We really appreciate hearing what you think of this show. Negative reviews give us important insights, and positive reviews help us to feel that what we're doing is a worthwhile endeavor, and that it's reaching people and people are appreciating it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care.